Tonight's reading comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. And there's Bibles in the seats in front, and on those Bibles, it's page 1187. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body and in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lusts like the pagans, who do not know God, and that, is, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects instructions does not it reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anyone. Thanks, Fiona. Well, hello, everyone. Hello. Thank you, Peter Welling, for being on the ball. Uh, Let me pray as we begin. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. So um, I thought uh, as we begin, actually, we'd play a little game. So here's how it's going to work. I'm going to give you the sort of opening line of a bunch of famous books, okay? And then you have to guess uh, the the name of the book is all you need to. Uh, If you want to, you can uh, go for the author as well. Um, It's going to be an honesty system, so just figure it out in your head. I'll give you a sec to think about it. Uh, And if you get all five right, there's going to be a little prize uh, at the end. Sound good? Yeah, Yeah, good. Okay, so here we go. Let's start with an easy one. Uh, In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. All righty. So that's enough time. Want to call it out? The Hobbit. Yeah, well done, right? So you don't get points for calling it out. You get points if you get it right in your mind. Uh, Call me Ishmael is the second one. Call me Ishmael. All right, you ready? One, two, three. Moby Dick. Did anyone? All right. Yep, nice. All right, hopefully you get this one. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four, Privet Drive, we're proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. One, two, three. Okay. Harry Potter. Did it, okay, did anyone get that? All right. This one. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. All right. 
I hear pride and prejudice. So there we go. All right, give yourself a point if you got that. All right, here's the last one. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. All right. Thank you. Okay. Kit Kat Chunky is up for grabs. The, the answer is A Tale of Two Cities. All right. Um, put your hand up if you got all five correct in your head. What about four? Nice one, Rowan. Oh. That's, that's for Josh. Anyone else? Nice one. It's actually kind of hard to see. All right. Oh, actually, these guys were up first. Now, um, what about keep your hand up if you've actually read all five? Put your hand up. Oh, wow. Nice. Did, you already got one, though. What about, um, who's that at the back? Yeah, you ready? Go long. <laughs> yeah, nice. That was great. Well, good catch. Safe as houses. All right, well done. Okay, so why, do we, why are we talking about opening lines? Well, I want to share with you um, two opening lines from my, like, ever, two of my favorite opening lines. The first one is from the Holy Bible, which says, in the beginning, God, <laughs> right? Um, and the second one is this. Um, it's from Rick Warren's The Purpose Driven Life. And if you've read it, you know how it starts. It says, it's not about you, <laughs> right? I absolutely love that. He says, it's not about you. He goes on to say this. He says, many people try to use God for their own self-actualization, but that is the very reversal of nature and is doomed to failure. He says, you were made for God and not vice versa. And life is about letting God use you for his purposes, not your using him for your own purpose. Right? Do you like that? It's not about you. So that's actually why I absolutely love how Paul opens uh, our passage here in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, if you've lost it, we're on page 1187 of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. 1187, chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. As in fact, you are now living you see, the purpose of our lives is not uh, to please ourselves. The purpose of our lives, what we were made for, uh, is to please God. Um, and so that's why I think this passage is so important for us today. Paul addresses how we can please God with our bodies uh, in um, three main ways, actually. He talks, first of all, that we should be pure in our sex lives. Uh, he says we should love our brothers and sisters. And finally, he says... Uh, we should work, right? That's how we please God in these three massive areas of our lives. Uh, now, that's the order in which he addresses them. I'm going to be a little bit cheeky. Uh, I'm actually going to talk about sex last, and hopefully that's going to keep us hanging on the edge of our seats to the end. All right, so uh, first of all, or secondly, if you like, love. All right, so jump with me down to, whoops, uh, jump with me down to verses 9 and 10. That's a little teaser. Um, Paul says this, he says, Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. 
So um, Paul is actually not talking about romantic love, of course, uh, in these verses. He's talking about Philadelphia. Uh, and as you just saw, he's not talking about this kind of Philadelphia. Uh, he's not talking about that kind of Philadelphia. Uh, he's not talking about that kind of Philadelphia. No, he's talking about this kind of Philadelphia. In other words, he's talking about brotherly and sisterly love. Uh, now, Philadelphia is actually a term that Christians, if you like, commandeered uh, to describe the love that they have for each other. And I think it's a great term because, let's be honest, um, you know, if you've got siblings, you know that a lot of the time they really annoy us, don't they? Um, but at the end of the day, we love our siblings and we're committed to them. And we think, I think my brother and sister, sister are, is, are great, um, but we're committed to them because they're family. Uh, and so this is the kind of love that Paul is talking about here. Um, as Christians, we're called to love each other like family. And, uh, and Paul actually says, basically, that love is exceedingly practical. Uh, so I think what's going on here is that the Thessalonians express their love um, for all the churches uh, in Macedonia. Thessalonica was the capital of Macedonia, by the way. Um, they express their love by meeting the financial needs uh, of the region. So what does it look like for us to love our brothers and sisters? There are so many things we could talk about here. Um, I'm going to uh, be bold and suggest that I don't think uh, one of the biggest needs here is uh, material needs um, that we need to meet to love one another. I actually think there are much bigger social and emotional needs right here at Night Church. Um, research was done last year that um, showed that one in four Australians report feeling lonely at least one day a week. Uh, and likewise, the research found that 30% of Australians say that they don't belong to a friendship group at all. Right? I found that, those statistics devastating, actually. And um, I don't know if it is at all true that those statistics and the trends have sort of made their way here into Night Church. But I actually want to say that if we live our lives uh, in order to please God, there should be no one here at Night Church who is lonely. There should be no one here who is left out. Um, so I actually want to encourage us to be generous, not just with our finances. Um, it is a good thing, even if you guys don't earn all that much, to be generous uh, and start that, that, um, that habit early. But I think we should also be generous with our friendships. I think we should be expansive. I think we should be inclusive um, in who we invite to dinner after night church and indeed in how we spend our social time um, throughout the week. I actually want to say, I want to sort of add an encouragement though, like, like Paul does here in verse 10, it seems to me that we are actually doing this pretty well, right? Verse 10, um, I want to say to you guys as well that you do love all of God's family here at Night Church, yet like Paul says, I urge you brothers and sisters to do so more and more. So how do we live in order to please God? First of all, we love. Second of all, we work. Uh, for most of my young adult life, I lived on the Lower North Shore, and um, I don't know if you know this, but one of the ways, or at least back in my day anyway, one of the ways that we, um, you know, met, when we met each other, we asked each other a question, and that is, what do you do for a living, right? Um, you know, hi, my name is Blah, what do you do? And um, I kind of thought this sounded a little bit like we were sort of sizing each other up, figuring out where we each stood in the social pecking order, kind of like a social game of scissors, paper, rock, you know, so it's like, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a personal trainer. Oh, well, I'm a doctor. And it's like, oh, okay, you win, right? So that's, that's how I sort of thought it went down, right? Um, 
But when I moved to Blacktown, like Western Sydney, um, we didn't ask, what do you do for a living? We actually asked each other a different question, and that is, what do you do on the weekends? Right? So it's quite different about what people value. So it struck me uh, today, actually, that some people in Sydney treat work um, you know, almost as a means to social status, whereas others in Sydney treat work as a means to spending on their leisures. Right? But in both cases, people are treating work as a means to an end. And what's so radically different about the Bible's view of work is that the Bible says work is an end in itself. Um, that's why uh, I think Paul is saying in verse 11, he says to the, the believers in Thessalonica, he says, work. Um, actually, this is a little bit rogue, but I actually think um, Paul in this passage, I could be wrong, but I think he was correcting the ancient practice of patronage. Um, so th- this is where a wealthy patron will get, to the get together a group of people, um, kind of like an entourage, if you've seen the TV show, uh, like around a celebrity. And um, the entourage were like clients, actually. So the, the, the patron would give them you know, food and representation in the channels of power, and they would give him support. They'd actually go out into the streets and in the, you know, the forums and so forth and show this guy honor, right, and show this guy support. And so to them, Paul says, guys, lead a quiet life, right? Stop being a public nuisance. He's saying, stop being busy bodies and stop being a sponge. He actually tells these guys, get a job. And he explains why in verse 12, he says, so that you'll win the respect of outsiders and so that you won't be dependent on anybody. Um, So at the very least, what does this say for us? I think this teaches us um, that if we can work, we should work, right? By the way, I think studying is a form of work. I'll just put that out there right now. Um, not everyone can work, uh, whether it's because of health or family commitments or because you've retired or, um, you know, you're actually trying to find a job. Um, but actually, I, I think Paul is not just saying, hey, you guys should work, um, whether paid or unpaid. I actually think um, Paul is being more radical. So in his day, the Greeks and the Romans hated work. They despised it. They thought manual labor was only fit for slaves. Um, And did you notice what Paul actually says here? I think he's sparking a bit of a revolution uh, when he says in verse 11, he says, you should work with your hands. Of course, Paul himself was a tent maker. And famously, uh, almost certainly, Jesus was a carpenter. But even cooler than that, if you read the account of Genesis 2, when God made the whole world and he um, formed Adam and Eve, it's as though God himself had his hands in the dirt in creating as a form of work. And so what I actually think Paul is getting at here at a deeper level, I think he's saying that all work is valuable in God's sight. I think he's saying all work is dignified, paid or unpaid. Whether you're serving coffees or whether you're balancing spreadsheets, uh, whether you're digging dirt or whether you're changing dirty nappies, you know, as a stay-at-home mum or dad. I think all work is valuable because all work is using your gifts to meet other people's needs and to enrich their lives. If you really think about it in how you spend most of your waking hours, I actually think work is the main way you obey the command to love your neighbor as yourself. 
Now, I'd love to say more about this, but unfortunately, I don't have time. Um, if you'd like to explore the topic, um, I really recommend this book by Tim Keller called Every Good Endeavor. Uh, but here, here's where I kind of want to apply this particularly uh, to some of us. Um, and that is, if you're at the stage of life where you can choose a career or where you can realistically change your career, um, I want to say this, choose purpose over pay any day. And of course, in our culture, I'm saying this because we're pretty much told to get the highest paying job you can get. Uh, for many of us, our parents want to see a return on their investment in our education. Um, the cost of you know, housing in Sydney is just crazy, as I'm discovering at the moment. And um, let's be honest, there are many people in Sydney, probably, who knows, probably even him church, and who will find you more admirable or more attractive if you have a higher paying job. But I want to urge you tonight, church, to actually cut through all that. <laughs> That's not the Bible's view of work at all. You see, there is dignity and divinity even in manual labor. Therefore, I want to say to you, aim for a job that's big on purpose rather than big on pay. And so I actually really love the way Tim Keller um, puts this. He says, when you're deciding on what career path to take, he says, you should ask yourselves three questions. Uh, and that is, number one, affinity. What do you love? Right? What really floats your boat? Number two, ability. What are you good at? And number three, opportunity. Where can you meaningfully contribute? I dare say if all three of those align in the job that you do, um, that's God's guidance uh, on your life. Um, and if you can find a job where all three come together, I believe you'll not only find pleasure in your work, you'll also please God as well with your work if you do it to the best of your ability and for His glory. Um, so that's the second way we can please God. Uh, finally, uh, we're going to get now to the topic of sex. So there's the Slido, uh, the, the Q&A um, event code up on the screen. Just while, I'll leave that there for a sec. Um, I just want to acknowledge that this is no doubt a very sensitive um, topic for many of us here today. I suspect there's no topic where the gap between Christianity and our culture is, uh, is, is wider. Um, actually, also, I want to say as well that um, all sin is, in, in a sense, equally displeasing to God. Um, but... Yeah, and, and Jesus, Jesus actually, I think, talks more about greed and pride than he does about sex. But I, it is worth saying there is something particularly damaging and long-lasting towards relationships about sexual sin. So that's why I think it is such a sensitive topic. And so that's why we're going to have an extended Q&A um, after the service over dinner. Now, the other thing I want to say up front is um, if you are here tonight and you don't claim to be a follower of Jesus... Welcome. Um, it's so awesome to have you with us. Um, I do um, really hope I don't come across as I'm telling you and imposing my view on how you should live. Um, what I'm actually trying to do is just pass on what, what we believe God says to us through the Bible. And I'm actually right now really, and have been, really talking to Christians about what will please God in how we live. So it's a little bit like a family fireside chat um, and so I apologize in advance if you think what, you know, I'm saying is offensive or oppressive. I, I really want to urge you to see that this is what the Bible says. Um, but also, I want to urge you to suspend your judgment, if you can, um, until you look into the evidence for the resurrection. Now, that might seem a weird thing to say, but have a listen to this. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, 
then who cares what the Bible says? But if Jesus did rise from the dead, and if he made us as he claims, then I put it to you that really is worth listening to what he says. And as you see there in verse 2, um, what Paul instructs the church in Thessalonica, and by implication, what he instructs to us, comes with the authority of the Lord Jesus himself. Okay, so um, feel free to come and ask me about this stuff later if you like. So without further ado, what does Jesus teach about sexuality? It's actually incredibly simple. Verse 3, have a look with me. Paul says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, right? Sanctified just means holified, actually, if that was a word. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Now, that word that Paul uses for sexual immorality is um, porneia, and um, it's obviously where we get the word um, porn or pornographic from. Um, And in a nutshell, porneia means any sex outside of marriage. Um, So that includes lots of things, actually. It includes adultery, it includes premarital sex, whether boyfriend-girlfriend, or even, actually, couples who are engaged. Um, Porneia includes prostitution, it includes homosexual sex, it includes incest, and and so on, right? Ironically, actually, um, I don't think porneia includes looking at porn as such, But make no mistake, the Bible is absolutely against porn in my view, among other reasons because looking at porn always involves lust and the Bible says that lust is always wrong. Okay, now straight away, many of us uh, might be thinking, my goodness, that sounds so terribly old-fashioned. Well, actually, it depends on how you define old um, because the ancient Greeks and Romans, I think, were far more sexually liberal than even us in our culture today. Uh, So for example, it was very normal for men to have, uh, you know, at least wealthy men, to have at least three sexual partners uh, on the go at once. Uh, They had a wife for bearing legitimate children. They had a mistress uh, for romantic, um, you know, passionate sex encounters. And they had a concubine, um, I guess you would say, for casual sex, who was actually often a household slave. And maybe they had more than that. Um, Prostitution was rife across the empire. Um, and much of the religion, so many of the temples, for example, in Thessalonica, like the cult of Dionysius or Aphrodite, positively promoted sexual license, right? So when you say old-fashioned, what do you mean exactly? Because if you go back to that kind of old-fashioned, Paul, uh, I believe, was revolutionary. Um, you know, depending on your pr- perspective, I would say he was radically progressive and liberating, uh, especially for women of his time. Nonetheless, um, you know, I actually, I actually would want to say you cannot understand the Christian view of sex unless you understand the Christian view of marriage. Now, it kind of is obvious, um, but it needs to be said that God invented sex. It's not like, um, you know, one day God looked down to see what Adam and Eve were up to. He saw Adam on top of Eve and he's like, Adam, what are you doing? Get out of it. You know, that kind of thing. Not at all, right? Um, you know... God made sex because he made marriage, right? And God made marriage, why? Because ultimately, God wanted marriage to be like a living signpost to the incredible love that God has for his people. So, you know, if you put it like this, that's why sex is so amazing, because marriage is so amazing, and marriage is so amazing because God's love for his people is so amazing, And so at a wedding, um, 
two people make a public commitment to love each other for life. And sex is basically a private reenactment of that marriage commitment. That's how God has designed it to be. God has designed sex to be like superglue, right? It's designed to bond people together. And so here's the pointy end of what I'm trying to say. If God designed sex for marriage as a declaration of, um, you know, a couple's commitment to love each other forever, if you think about it, then all sex outside of marriage is essentially, perhaps accidentally, a lie, right? You see, if you sleep with someone you're not married to, whether or not you admit it, your body is actually telling them that you will love them forever, but you actually haven't decided that yet in your heart to love them forever. So that's why it's so painful for couples who've had sex and then later break up. It's like they lose a part of themselves when they separate. And, you know, the stats are are fairly convincing. Um, A lot of people still have feelings for their ex for years and years to come, right? It's kind of like if you actually glue two pages together or super glue two pages together and try to then tear them apart, there will be a tear, there will be pain. And I hate to say this, but it is even worse for divorce. Um, I heard one person say that divorce felt like an amputation. I heard one person tell me not too long ago that he had lost a child and he said that the pain of divorce was worse than losing a child. And friends, that broke my heart when I heard that. Brothers and sisters, God is love. When he gives us commands, he gives them out of love because he only ever wants our good. God invented sex and he knows it's like a fire, right? A fire in a fireplace is warm and fantastic, right? But take the fire out of its boundaries and you can be sure it will damage and destroy. So let's go back to the passage. What's the problem with sexual sin? Paul gives four reasons uh, why we should avoid it. And the first one is this in verse 4. Sexual sin is neither holy nor honourable. Now, I want to apologise to the Brits in the room, or really for any lovers of the Queen. And that is, uh, here's this illustration. Imagine you arrived at Buckingham Palace one morning, and there in the gutter was the Queen with an empty bottle of gin and a bad hangover and one of her corgis licking her face, right? Right? You know, it would be no good for her at that moment to say, but I'm free to do whatever I want. See, that's not the point. What she has done is way, way beneath her dignity. And if you're a Christian, God has made you one of his own sons or daughters. It's not a stretch to say that you are at least princes and princesses. You are at least, I think, kings and queens under God to rule the world with him. You know, if you could see the glory of your future self right now in the mirror, you would be tempted to bow down and worship what you saw. So it's not just that sexual immorality displeases God. It drags you down from the glorious heights to which God has raised you. Secondly, verse 5, sexual sin comes from disordered desires. Verse 5, when Paul there talks about passionate lust, he uses this word, I'm 
sorry to kind of go into a couple of Greek words tonight, but he uses epithumia, and uh, that word is usually translated evil desires, um, but it's a bit more neutral than that, right? Epithumia doesn't necessarily mean desire for evil things. Uh, it really just means excessive desire, even for good things, right? So sex is a good thing, but the problem with sexual sin is that when we want it too much, that's when we're tempted to disobey God, right? So Sexual sin happens when we elevate sex above all else. And when we do that, we turn sexual sin, uh, or rather sexual desires and sex itself, into a God. Um, So back in 1974, there was this guy, um, Ernest Becker, wrote a book uh, that won the Pulitzer Prize uh, called The Denial of Death. And in it, he says, people used to look to God, right, for meaning and purpose in their lives. But now that they've gotten rid of God, They look to romance and sex. He says people elevate their love partner to the position of God. And they look for their romantic partner to sort of fill up all the emptiness in their hearts and to um, sort of wash over all their faults. And he says from their love partner, they want nothing less than redemption. And he very cynically points out, he says, needless to say, human partners can't do this. Shouldn't say cynically. I think realistically, he says this. So that's uh, that's number two. Sexual sin comes from disordered desires. Uh, number three, sexual sin wrongs and takes advantage of another person. Never really thought about this um, as much as I should have until the, I read this passage again this week. You see, the culture of our day um, says that sex is great. You know, as long as it's between two consenting adults, no one is harmed. But what Paul is saying is actually that's not true. He says whether you admit it or not, sex outside of marriage is actually exploitative. There's an old saying which I think is pretty much true. It says men use love to get sex and women use sex to get love. Now that might seem like a good deal for some uh, for a little while, uh, but almost always it leads to someone getting hurt. And I hate to say this, but often, more often than not, that someone is the woman in the relationship. Um, Have a listen to how one woman reflects on the so-called liberation for women of the sexual revolution since the 1960s. Right, so this is Danielle Crittenden. She says this, Indeed, in all the promises made to us about our ability to achieve freedom and independence as women, the promise of sexual emancipation may have been the most illusory. All the sexual bravado a girl may possess evaporates the first time a boy she truly cares for um, makes it clear that he no longer has further use for her after his own body has been satisfied. No amount of feminist posturing, no amount of reassurances that she doesn't need a guy like that anyway can protect her from the pain and humiliation of those awful moments after he's gone when she's alone and feeling not sexually empowered but discarded. Finally, verse 6, the reason to avoid sexual sin is because God will punish it. Now, if that sounds barbaric to you, and it might for some, I want to put it to you that perhaps you've actually never been seriously wronged or exploited. Because if if you're here today and you've been used... And if you're here today and you've been cheated on and you're struggling to forgive, you need to hear this. God will punish sexual sin. 
because God is on the side of the oppressed. God sees all that is done in secret. And there will come a time when he will rise up and judge all with perfect justice. So friends, that's why, you know, um, God says it is mine to avenge, I will repay, and he calls us to forgive. And I think this is good news um, for those who are victims of sexual sin. But on the other hand, I actually think it's kind of frightening uh, for uh, pretty much all of us at the same time. Because I strongly suspect there's not a single person here who doesn't have a secret to hide. I'm just going to talk about myself for a second. If somehow, you know, someone zapped the screen behind me and all my stuff-ups were shown on the screen, I would be ashamed beyond belief in front of you guys. And I dare say I'm pretty sure that's true for everyone else as well. So here's where I want to remind you of the staggeringly awesome truth of the gospel. Because in the gospel, God doesn't just say, I forgive. He also says, I forget. In Isaiah 43, God says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions and remembers your sins no more. You see, God can say that because when Jesus died on the cross, all our sin died with him. God laid on him all our guilt and all our shame. And guilt and shame died with him on the cross. God destroyed it completely there. And that's the glory of justification. It's a technical term, but really just means this. The moment we trust in Jesus, God treats me just as if I, just if I had never sinned. And there's an old hymn, it puts it like this, it says, what, let me start again, it says, what, though the accuser roar of ills that I have done, I know them well, and thousands more, Jehovah findeth none, (laughs) right? So our conscience might rise up, rise up and accuse us, Satan might rise up and accuse us, you know, the social media mob might, you know, bring out its, you know, digital pitchforks and shame us. But you see, God says, I know nothing of what they're talking about. Jehovah findeth none, you see. If you trust in Jesus, God now sees you as pure. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what's been done to you, friends. You are not damaged goods. If you trust in Jesus, you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our living God. We don't now seek to be sexually pure in order to be accepted by God. We seek now to be sexually pure because we already are in God's sight. And that's a wonderfully, um, yeah, it's a wonderful message of good news and hope. So before we close, um, I actually want to offer some practical uh, tips, hopefully very practical, that will um, aid us, I hope, in the battle against sexual sin. Um, but before I do that, I want to talk to the married. Uh, let me just say, uh, as one of your pastors, if I could put this mildly, love one another lots, right? And I mean love in every sense of that word. You see, sex is God's gift to strengthen your marriage, and your marriage is a reminder to all of us of God's love for um, all His people. So I want to encourage you, make time for sex, Make time for romance and emotional intimacy that should accompany good sex as well. Now, with that out of the way, um, I want to speak mainly to singles, um, but some of what I say will apply to marrieds as well.
Uh, so first of all, watch what you watch. Look, it's no secret that sex is absolutely everywhere. It's on billboards, on buses, in malls, in movies, and in magazines. Be careful where you look, right? Because guys and girls are especially, um, you know, especially guys, but guys and girls, we're visually stimulated. Um, if you see an ad, um, you know, or a person at the beach who's very attractive, let me just say, don't freak out, right? It's good to know that, you know, systems are fully operational, but <laughs> just don't linger, right? That's the difference between looking and lusting. Um, one of uh, my heroes, the 16th century reformer, Martin Luther, he puts it like this. He says, you cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair, right? So I think it's very helpful. Um, now, for some people, that might mean um, don't have the internet at home, right? I'm, I have friends who have that very strict policy because they know when they get home after, a work and they're after work and they're lonely and frustrated, they're just two clicks away from porn. Uh, for me, um, you know, not letting the birds nest in my hair, that, for me personally, that meant I refused to watch Game of Thrones uh, just because of what I found that to be quite unhelpful. Um, but, you know, we're all different. I, and I fast forward through most of sex scenes um, on TV shows. But you need to figure out what that means for you. Uh, to watch what you watch. Um, just a little note in passing as well, not just watch what you watch, but friends, watch what you wear, particularly um, as summer approaches, um, you know, for the sake of other people's holiness. That's all I'll say. Um, second, seek a spouse, right? So this might seem obvious, um, but sexual desires are there for a reason, um, all right? So sexual desires are kind of intended to um, get people together, or, not, or to put it round in reverse, People wouldn't be ma getting married, I don't think, if there weren't such a thing as sexual desires, right? However, I'm going to be the absolute last person to tell you that you should just settle for anyone in order to have sex. I think it's a terrible reason to get married. Um, but I'm saying, you know, sexual desires do have a purpose to some extent. And I would say this, sexual desire should motivate us to seek a spouse, um, to some extent, and more than that, they should motivate us, because they're so powerful, Sexual desire should motivate us to be the kind of people who someone else would like to marry. And by that, I mean grow in Christ-likeness, right? Grow in reliability, grow in responsibility, grow as someone willing to lay down your selfish desires to serve someone else in love, because that's ultimately what you're committing to in marriage. One more thing, don't underestimate how much our pornified culture has profoundly impacted the way um, you know, our expectation of what a real man or a real woman looks like. Okay, so don't aim for Mr. Right um, or Miss Perfect because they don't exist. If you find yourself dating Mr. All Right and Miss Pretty Good, I think you're doing well. Okay, third, seek safety in numbers. Uh, one of the greatest gifts God gives us in the battle against sexual sin is each other. And I wonder if there are many people uh, here tonight um, thinking you could never talk about this stuff with others because you're the only one who struggles. Friends, that is absolutely not true. I can guarantee that. I can't recommend this enough. Um, if you're a guy, get together with two, you know, one or two guys. If you're a girl, get together with one or two girls and just be real, right? You actually need to give them permission to ask tough questions and perhaps you might like to do the same. Uh, you might like to use an accountability software called Covenant Eyes. We can talk about that more later. 
But let me try to give a, an, uh, an analogy. When I was working out at uh, F45 for like a week, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, um, it was obvious to me that there were people there who really cared about my physical health, not just the trainers, but there was real camaraderie uh, on the floor as well. And I really felt that they didn't judge me for where I was at. But it's almost as though they had a vision for me of what I could be, right? And they wanted to help get me there. Now, you know, wouldn't it be awesome uh, if we were likewise a community who cared deeply about the spiritual health of one another, where we could actually not judge each other, but filled with love and grace, um, you know, and gentleness, try to help each other day by day to become the people that Christ died for us to be. In Galatians 6 verse 2, Paul says, carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. It's a beautiful verse to memorize. So seek safety in numbers and finally, seek the Lord. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says this. He says, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it, right? That is a promise you can take to the bank. God doesn't leave you alone in the battle. He gives you his word. He gives you his spirit. He is with you every step of the way. So rely on him. When you're tempted, turn to him, right? In the words of the old hymn, and here's where we'll end. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. If you can do that when you are tempted sexually, I think you'll be doing well and you will live a life that pleases God. Let me pray. Lord God, help us to remember that the purpose of our lives is not to please ourselves, but to please you. Please help us to see you as sufficient and satisfying beyond degree, such that it always, would always be our delight to obey you rather than our temptation to sin. Help us to use our bodies in sex, in love and in work to please you in all that we do. For we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.